Uh, let's talk about the certainties of hope. This is the end of our series on eternity. And we're going to just get right into it today. Job 19, verse 26. This is Job. This is a guy who didn't have a Bible. He had never been to church. He didn't have the law of Moses or the pen, uh, all those writings. He didn't have anything. Well, he had something, but he didn't. Religious structure, I don't think there was much there. After my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. That's certainty. That's a certainty of hope. Then we jump over to, all the way to a New Testament. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, for it is the Lord you are serving, the Lord Christ you are serving. I love this lengthy quote by C.S. Lewis. Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do, it does not mean that we're to leave the world, present world as it is. If you read the history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were those who threw most of the... Who, 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 the present world were those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. It seems a strange rule, but if something like it can be seen at work in, as in other matters, but something like it can be seen at work in other matters. Health is a great blessing, but the moment you make health one of your main direct objects, you start becoming a crank and imagining there's something wrong with you. You're only likely to get health provided when you want other things more. Food, games, work, fun, open air. In the same way, we shall never save civilization as long as civilization is our main object. We must learn to want something else even more. Boy, nobody's replaced C.S. Lewis, have they? What a treasure he was for us. And we get to still read him today. So... That's the certainty of hope and the power of hope that C.S. Lewis talks about. It. Let me give you a few certainties of hope today. A few certainties of eternity that Scripture gives us. First of all, we have certainty that we will spend eternity in the presence of God. We have certainty about that. Jesus' audience consisted of three groups of people, mainly. would be the common Jewish person, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees believed that when you die, everything is over. They did not believe in an afterlife. The Pharisees, on the other hand, did believe in an afterlife. In fact, their view of the afterlife is pretty consistent with Christian beliefs about the afterlife. That after death, we spend eternity with God, or if we have rejected God, we spend eternity without God, a godless eternity, a, a life 
uh, we spend eternity separate from God. We see these words in Revelation chapter 21 verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be them as their God. Revelation 21.3. Sam Storms was a man. I talked about him a little bit last week. He was a man who had lived a very self-absorbed life. He was a professor. uh, A noted professor had been cited in many, with many of his articles and all of that kind of thing, things that are important to professors. And, uh, uh, but was unfaithful to his spouse, neglected his children, and one day he was in Europe and he died suddenly, or he, he, he passed out and he, he believes he died because he had what they call a near-death experience. And his near-death experience was not as, as positive as some's, but his near-death experience, he experienced uh, demonic creatures uh, taking chunks out of his body and tormenting him. And he experienced the, he experienced the horrors of hell. And uh, he began to pray. Uh, he didn't know how to pray, but he knew a few lines from the Lord's Prayer. And he began to quote those lines. And he noticed as he would quote those lines, the, the, the demons would back off. And he continued to say every spiritual thing he could think of. And 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 so uh, Christ suddenly appeared and delivered him from the demonic spirits. And, and he said Christ showed him the new world. And we can't base our theology on a near-death experience, by the way. But it, 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 we, we, it's worth noting when it coincides with what the Bible seems to indicate. Because a lot of people confuse, um, a lot of people, uh, confuse uh, the, the term heaven with the heavenly city. And, and the Bible in Revelation chapter 21 describes, uh, in chapter 22, describes the heavenly city coming down out of heaven. Uh, the, 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 the new Jerusalem, as we might call it. So I think a lot of people, when you say, when you talk about uh, that, we, that people go to heaven when they die, they think of going to live in the heavenly city. But that's not heaven, that's just the headquarters of heaven. That's the headquarters, apparently, from what we can tell, and if you want to believe it's metaphorical, uh, believe it's metaphorical. That's fine. Met- metaphors are pretty powerful. You know, well, you can't always take them literally. The, Bi- the Bible talks about us being under the shadow of God's wings. And uh, when I pray, I don't imagine Big Bird uh, because uh, I know it's a metaphor. And so I know, <laughs> I, know it means that, I, mean, I know it means that God is protecting me and he cares about me just like that, that massive eagle cares about... The, his little eaglets in the nest, and God has the same concern for me and for you today. So if, if, if you want to believe a metaphor, will you just plan on going to a metaphorical heaven? I'm going to go to a real one. <laughs> but even if, even if it's a metaphor, just like the one I just mentioned about God, God with feathers, <laughs> it means something. And it means something powerful. In fact, in fact, usually what it means is more intense and more powerful than the metaphor. The metaphor is just the best we can come up with. So anyway, the New Jerusalem is not heaven. It's the headquarters of heaven. And uh, the, um, many people will, will try to tell you that the Jews had no understanding of heaven, but that's not true. The Jews, the Old Testament Jews, had a, maybe not a real clear idea, but they had a really clear idea that God resided in the heavens and that we would go to meet him. They also had a clear idea 
that we would come back to earth and God would create a new heavens and a new earth. We'll talk about that in a second as well. Because the second certainty that I want to bring out to you is we will have the certainty of a resurrected, incorruptible physical body invulnerable to sickness, pain, and death. Plato, we're not, and a lot of people accuse Christians, but you get your ideas of eternity from Plato. You get your ideas of heaven and hell from Plato. Well, that's not true. Although, because Plato believed we would be disembodied spirits. He believed we'd be disembodied souls in eternity, uh, roaming around for something he called the forms, and uh, that we would find these forms, and we would, uh, I don't know what the forms look like, but, uh, but, you, but you, your physical body would not, be, would, not be, would not be resurrected. But the Christian doctrine and the biblical doctrine is that our physical bodies will be resurrected and uh, 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 in fact, uh, I, I was intrigued as I began to, I didn't realize how much the Old Testament said about our physical bodies being resurrected and how, how much of a Jewish idea it was, because somebody had told me it wasn't a Jewish idea. But I found it, look at, I'm, I don't have this on the screen for you, but it's in my notes, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And I was so surprised, I'd never seen it, I've been reading the Bible all my life, I never saw this verse before. It says, and many of those who sleep in the, in, in the dust of the ground will awake. That was Daniel in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. They will awake those, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. That's Old Testament. And of course, the, uh, another story we, we have in uh, what, what they call apocryphal literature of Jewish literature. And we don't know if these stories are true. Or if they're folklore. But even if they're folklore, because they're in ancient Jewish literature, we know the Jews knew about it. And it reflected a doctrine and the belief they had. And there's this story about this woman who had three boys. And some invading army tried to force them to eat pork. And rather than eat pork, they, they submitted themselves to execution. And as they're executing her three sons, before each one, two of the three sons made clear remarks and talked about they would rather face death than disobey God because they were confident that they would see God in the flesh and God would resurrect them and raise them to life in the flesh. So there's very clear, it's very clear that the people that Jesus was talking to, that Jesus did not contradict, was a clear belief that we will have a physical resurrection and not just be disembodied spirits floating around in the ether. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead in 1 Corinthians 15. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Spiritual body does not mean a disembodied spirit. A spiritual body means a body that was like the body that Jesus had. If anybody had a spiritual body after the resurrection, it was the Jesus himself. So Jesus had a spiritual body, and he, he even sat and ate with his disciples to demonstrate to them that the body, and, and he was recognizable. He was recognizable to them, and he sat and ate with them to let them know that he was not a spirit a spiritual body is not a spirit. A spiritual body is, is an immortal body. A spiritual, spiritual body is a body that's invulnerable to death, invulnerable, invulnerable to pain, invulnerable to suffering. A spiritual body is a perfect body. Some, some of you have been wanting that perfect body. Well, you're going to get it. 
We have the certainty of complete absence of sorrow, tears, or pain. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, the scripture says. And, and you know, the thing that I, I really stands out to me when I look at the scripture that I'm reading to you right now is that God really cares about how you feel. Sometimes we think, well, God doesn't care about how we feel. He just wants us to get on with life and then meet him in heaven. God cares so much about how you feel, and he cares about your pain. He cares about your sorrow. He cares about your depression. He cares about it so much that he, he wants you to know when, when, when this earth is dissolved and when I create the new heaven and new earth, one of the things I want you to know, one of the things you've got to look forward to is that you're going to be incredibly happy. Isn't that cool? Isn't that really cool? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Also, we have the certainty that every act of service, good deed, kind act, and all voluntary suffering will be repaid and compounded with compounded interest. And everyone who's left houses or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily for the Lord and not for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And then Matthew chapter 10, and you, even if you give a cup of water to one of the least of my followers, you will surely be rewarded. This is an amazing principle that will, that's what C.S. Lewis was talking about. This is what will transform your life is when you understand that even the most secretive good deed that you do, God notices and God will repay you with interest. You know, it, it, you know what the smartest thing you could do? The smartest thing you could do today is the simplest thing you could do. Start being good to people. Is that too hard? Somebody says, it's just too hard. I can't do that. <laughs> you know, I, I, was, I, was, uh, I was watching uh, some of the uh, Asbury uh, prayer meeting revival videos yesterday. And I was right driving around and, and walking around doing things. And I had my headphones on. And, and, and these lyrics come through that I'd never heard before. It was, uh, pray the, here, here's the lyrics. Pray the prayer that darkness hates. More of you and less of me. So, isn't that a powerful lyric? Uh, we got to sing that. Pray the, pray the prayer that darkness hates. More of you and less of me. It's just, uh, if, if you do not believe in the certainty of hope, this won't make any sense to you. It won't make any sense to you to be good to people all the time. And to be consistently sowing kindness into other people's lives. You see, we've been delivered. From, uh, I, I, we need to understand that we've been delivered from this world system. It's, it's a glorious deliverance that you're, that you're not in the sum zero game of the world system anymore. You've been delivered from the power, it, the kingdom of darkness. You've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness where... Where the end justifies the means. You know, I, I've been, I, I've been uh, studying the history 
of the Dulles brothers who created the CIA. Uh, Alan Dulles and uh, John Foster Douglas was Secretary of State. And th these were men who had a very religious background. These were men who were raised in the Presbyterian Church. And John Foster Douglas actually went to Princeton University to become a pastor and decided he could do the world more good by coming a, by coming in a lawyer <laughs> instead of a pastor. And it's so clear when you study their lives that that they they believed in this idea called manifest destiny that they believe were manifest to rule the world. And they 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 made that political and determined that America was had manifest destiny. And America was manifest to be the rulers of the world. And so those two brothers, more than probably any other, created this economic global empire. And they lost sight. They completely, they began to, the ends justified the means. And you follow the, the history is, is very sad. The things they did and the things they did around the world that we're still, we're still paying for the things they did. And they got people executed and all kinds of terrible things. It's not, this is, these aren't secrets. I'm not, these are well-known facts. Because they lost sight of the kingdom of God. And they, they replaced the kingdom of God with the kingdom of man and the kingdom of darkness. And they gave their lives to it. And they left in their wake much sorrow. Much sorrow. And, you know, you're not going to, you know, I'm not going to deal with world affairs and neither you. But you can create sorrow. And, you, you know, it's not just about going to hell. You're already in hell if you're living in darkness. If you're worshiping the kingdom of dark, king of darkness and you're in that sum zero dog-eat-dog and justifies the means life. If you're living that kind of life, you're no better than the Dulles brothers. And you're already living in hell. And so, I want to go to heaven now as well as later. <laughs> we have the certainty that every act of service will be played with, with, with interest. We have the certainty that eternity will be a continuation of the commitment we held dear in this life. Matthew chapter 25, verse 21. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many. Come and share many things. Come and share your master's happiness. If you, lived your, if you live your earthly life saying no to God, God, I don't want you uh, ruling my life. I, I don't want to um, uh, walk with you, be with you. I don't, I don't enjoy your presence. I don't really enjoy your presence. I'm not going to church. You know, I don't think coming to church will save you any more than staying in your garage will make you a car. You know, so uh, <laughs> uh, so I, I don't I don't think coming to church will save you. But coming to church is a sign that you like the presence of God. Coming and singing the songs. Our worship team did such a great job this morning leading us in worship. And coming and singing the songs means you enjoy the presence of God. Why would God take you to be with him after you die when you don't like being with him and you don't enjoy him? Why, why would he force you to an eternity with him when you prefer life without him? Now, I, it, that's a very harsh reality. And I, I, told, I said in the first service, you know, I said we have a, 
So we have scholars like N.T. Wright on one hand, and we have John MacArthur on the other. And N.T. Wright's always trying to turn down the temperature of hell, and John MacArthur's turning it up. <laughs> I'm just being silly. Because I understand, I understand the dilemma. I, understand the, I know what the elephant in the room is. We all know nice people who reject God. We all know nice people. It's, it's, I, I, in one interview, I watched N.T. Wright, and you could see the pain in his face, and you understand why, why he turns down the fire. Because he said, he said, in fact, he said, and I'll paraphrase, he said, it's painful for me to even talk about it because I know good people who reject God. I don't know the whole answer, guys. I'm not, you know. I, I, I always like what, uh, what Mike Huckabee said on Larry King years ago. Larry King said, are you saying that Jesus is the only way? And, and Huckabee goes, well, it's the only way I know. <laughs> I, that's where I sit. It's the only way I know. I'm glad, it's, I'm glad I'm not God. I'm glad it's in his hands. Because I'm like you. I know some really good people who reject God. I know some really nice people. I, in fact, they're nicer than some of the people I know who, who, who say they love God. <laughs> but God has been very clear with us. God has been very fair with us. God has been very just. In fact, the scripture says that's why he waits so that all can come to repentance. That's why he waits. I know that one second after I die, one second after I meet God, I'm going to know for sure. I already know it in my spirit, but I'm going to know for sure that God wasn't the problem. <laughs> N.T. Wright says this, but it seems to me that the New Testament is very clear that there are people who do reject God and reject what would have been his best will for them. And God honors their decision. That's hell. When God honors your decision. Tim Keller said, Hell is the trajectory of a soul living in a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever. In other words, hell is the trajectory of a soul living for itself. Finally, we have the certainty of accountability and judgment before God. Now, now you may go, well, that doesn't sound so good. Why don't you end on that? Well, maybe it is good. You know, the atheists will say, can you believe a God that would execute people like in the Old Testament? And the same atheists will say, how can you believe in a God that won't eradicate evil? Well, you can't have it both ways. If he eradicates evil, he eradicates evil. And if people who have chosen evil will not... And you study some... And I know they're very painful passages to look at in the Old Testament. But you study those cultures. And they were... They were cultures that were throwing their babies into fire to, to worship their idol. So, again, one second in eternity, and I believe we're going to find that God wasn't the problem. Uh, Christians will, will, will say, 
accountability, call me an accountability, they will say, uh, I'm being judged. You're judging me. Yet they want credit for their good deeds. So, again, you can't have it both ways. And so that is why it makes sense to me that the certainty of eternity, the certainty of eternity, we're very clearly shown in the epistles, in Revelation, two judgments. One judgment for those who are connected to God and those who have served God and those who have accepted Him. And one for those who have not. This is the only way I, uh, I have to believe the Bible. But by the way, uh, I, I know that, that, that some of us want to pick and choose what we like in the Bible and what we don't. You know, it's like, I don't know uh, if, how many have ever been to a cafeteria in the South. It's not a delicatessen. If you've only been to a delicatessen in the Northeast, you have no idea. Uh, uh, a, a, a cafeteria, a southern cafeteria, is a delicatessen on steroids. It's food as long as you can see, you know, and you go down and you pick what you want and you don't pick what you don't want. Or what you, and but the Bible, reading the Bible cannot be a cafeteria experience. You got to eat the whole thing. Because, well, because you go, well, I like uh, love your neighbor as yourself. I really like that. Or doing to others you have and doing to you. That, that, that's good. I'll take that. I'll, I'll eat. God serve me some of that. Well, if you discredit one scripture, then you discredit the whole book. If, if what the Bible says about judgment, if what the Bible says about judgment and accountability, if you get rid of that, you get rid of the golden rule. You cannot have it. You, 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 you have to have it all because it all matters. And it all... The Bible says that God is love. And we're going to realize someday, if we don't realize already, that even the things we didn't understand were done out of love. And even the things we couldn't, didn't agree with or we wouldn't do it that way, we're going to find out that it was the only choice a loving God had. The only way a loving God could create the new heaven and a new earth and create justice would be that God would be a God of judgment. That he could not be a God of love. And I, I dare say that none of you can be a person who loves if you're not also capable of judging. I certainly hope if, 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 I, if I have to be in your life, I hope you will judge evil. Because if you don't, I have, to, I have to experience evil to be in your life. And I don't want to experience, I want to experience as little of evil as I can. And if you're a person who says, well, I can't judge evil, that means I'm going to have to be on my guard constantly because the kind of people you're going to bring to me, the kind of things you're going to do around me are going to be things that are going to, going to be corrupting and, and, and difficult. So, so I'm not, it's not possible to be a, a God of love and not be a God of judgment. That, that, that's like a doctor who won't, who won't remove my cancer because he doesn't believe in cutting people. <laughs> I can't cut your body open. I can never do that. I can never, I, a, a good doctor can cut your leg off or, your, or amputate your arm because he sees that, that it's, gang, it's full of gangrene and, and there's no way. It's gonna, you're going to die if he doesn't deal with it. I know those are, those are not nice images before lunch. The Bible says, here's the two judgments. 
we must all be pure before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is good, what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. You know, I've done some bad things in my life, and I'm going to face those. I've done a bunch of good stuff too, though, and I want to know about that. Because some of you don't give me credit. (laughs) I can't wait to stand before God and have him tell all of you (laughs) the good stuff that nobody ever gave me credit for. (laughs) That's what I mean. It's the yin and the yang, right? (laughs) Then there's those who reject God then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from the presence of God and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead great and small standing before the throne and books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And I, I mentioned last Sunday, the, uh, they did research of, uh, of near-death experiences of American Indians uh, Native Indians, uh, 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 Native Americans, before the colonialists even came here. So they had had no Bible, uh, no exposure to Christian doctrine. And yet in their, when, when they recorded their near-death experiences, they recorded meeting angels with the Book of Life many, many times. So, so there seems to be some, uh, even in the NDE world, there seems to be some uh, affirmation of that. Let's look at the power of certainty. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver? Hobbling between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. See, all these questions that I entertain about hell and judgment and uh, who goes to heaven and who does, goes to hell, you know, really, really, we need to set that aside for a moment. And you need to decide what you believe. You need to decide who you're going to serve. That's really all that matters today. And psychologists tell us there's five benefits to certainty. One is reduced anxiety. You know, you could lower your anxiety right now if you just make a decision about what you think, what you believe. Increased confidence. If you feel certain about what I've preached today, and think of the confidence you're going to have in doing good for others. The next time, the next time it, it's a choice between leaving a mess and cleaning it up, it's going to be an easy choice. Because <laughs> you know the God keeping a record. And someday he's going to tell your family how much you cleaned up that they didn't even know about. <laughs> Improved decision making is the third one. Make better, you make... Wouldn't your decision-making get a lot better if you just believed that heaven waits for you? A greater sense of control is the fourth thing they talk about. And finally, an enhanced focus. That helps you as a person to focus your attention, your efforts, everything. It eliminates distractions. When, when you're... you're your focus is, I'm going to stand before God. To the best of my ability, that's my focus every day. I'm going to stand before God. That will clear up so many things for you. 
when you believe that the daily life that you live is going to be one that's going to be presented before God someday and you're going to answer to God, not people. So I don't know. Well, let me tell you something. Indecision becomes a decision with time. So I want to end by saying with this series by talking to you finally and for just briefly, I promise, how to stop wavering and make a quality decision about eternal life. There are dozens of scripture texts I could bombard you with here, but you've already been given a lot of scripture today. So I'll give you a break. Everything I'm about to say is supported by scripture, common sense, even good psychology, and everything we know about how to be successful. Number one is don't openly, don't confess what you're not convinced of. Don't confess what you're not convinced of. If you're sitting here today, well, I'm not convinced this is all true. Well, it's so important. It's important enough that you should try to get, make a decision. And in fact, it's important enough that you will make a decision, even by default. So I'd be happy to direct you to some to resources and places that you can find out whether you whether you're convinced. I, just, I noticed that Josh McDowell just just produced a new version uh, of evidence that demands a verdict. That would be if you if you want to find one book, I think I would recommend go read Evidence that Demands a Verdict. If you don't read, listen to the audio book. Second thing I would say to you is don't wait for perfect circumstances or some magical moment in the future. If you're convinced, make your move today. You say, well, it's not very emotional in here. I don't think I can do it. It doesn't matter if it's emotional or not. We're not working up to some perfect emotional moment. This is reality. Emotions are fine. And if, if I was the type of preacher that stirred everybody emotionally, I'm not that kind of preacher. But if I were the kind that brought everybody to an emotional climax every Sunday, you're all tear in tears, that would be fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But it doesn't make the decision any better. It doesn't make the decision, or it doesn't make the consequences, the reward for that decision, or the consequence from not making the decision any better or worse. We're dealing with what is true. Or what is not true. That's all that matters. I said, that's all that matters. Is what is true and what is not true. Feelings are good. They have a place. But what really matters is what is true. Finally, don't just pray a prayer of acceptance of facts, but a confirmation of surrender to the rule of God over your life. Jesus surrendered so you can surrender. Jesus surrendered so you would know how to surrender. Jesus surrendered so you would know what surrender looks like. Every Jewish person understood that to, 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 to become a follower had had all to do with surrender. It's not about accepting a fact. It's not even about accepting a truth, even though that's the starting point. It's about accepting a person. It's about accepting a person and that person's role in your life. And that person is Jesus. And his role is king. And that's how you get saved is you accept Jesus as your king. You accept him as the ruler of this life. The kingdom of God, we said in the beginning of the series, that the kingdom of God is the realm in which God reigns. 
And every Jewish person understood this idea. Apostle Paul began his spiritual journey with saying, Lord, Lord, who are you? That's an interesting thing, huh? He said, boss, because that, that's what they understood that word to mean. He said, boss, who are you, boss? I know you're the boss, because I just, I just got stopped in my tracks. And his next words were, what would you have me do? Augustine of Hippo was a very immoral man who one day heard a voice that said, take up and read the Bible. And when he did, according to his testimony, he was overcome with a sense of peace. And he used this phrase, surrender. He, was, he came to a place of surrender. And that's the same thing Paul would say, as I just alluded to, trembling and astonished, Paul said, Lord, what will thou have me do? And he goes on to say in Galatians 1.10, obviously I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. But if pleasing God were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. <laughs> so, I'm not talking about thinking you're going to live a sinless life of perfection. You're not going to. I'm not talking about that you're going to be good enough to earn God's favor. But I am talking about turning over the management of your life to Christ. In fact, we're going to get ready to receive communion right now. I want you to... Has everybody received, got their elements of communion? Uh, raise your hand if you don't have them. Ushers will get them to you. Please, ushers, help me out. Get everybody that's uh, got their hand raised to communion elements. And uh, boy, I tell you, talk about something that speaks of eternity. This speaks of eternity. This is an eternal, eternal partaking of, of because, because uh, remember what Jesus said at the, in the Last Supper? In the Last Supper, Jesus said, I won't drink you, I won't drink this with you again until I come in my kingdom. So every time they took communion, they thought about eternity. Every time they took communion, they thought about those early Christians, you know, who had met Jesus. They thought about, the next time we t take this with Jesus, it's going to be in the new kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. Is heaven, we didn't get to really get around to talking about heaven, where heaven is. Heaven is out there. You know? Heaven, as we know it, it's a temporary holding place, though, because the Bible says he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. So it's a temporary holding place for us. And like I think I said uh, earlier, it's not the, the, the heavenly city. We often think about that we're living in, living in the heavenly city. We're going to have a mansion and some gold streets. And, uh, uh, th that's not, that's weird. That's not really what's going to happen, right? In fact, uh, we're going to be, I believe, uh, according to uh, uh, Howard Storm's vision, we're, uh, uh, the, the guy that I talked about earlier, he saw us living in communities just like we do now. But in these communities, we're, we're producing, we're, we're raising food, but there's no pain, there's no sorrow, there's no death, there's no conflict, there's no sickness. And we're living in communities in this earth. Uh, N.T. Wright says that heaven's a holding place, that we go away, but we're coming by. And... Uh, so, you know what? 
that doesn't really matter, does it? So much as this. The, the promise that God says, I've got your eternity all taken care of. Let's uh, consider the body of the Lord Jesus. Father, I thank you for your body that was broken for me. Because your body was broken for me, I'm willing to be broken for you. I can never pay or bear the burden of my own sins, much less everybody else's. You took care of that. But today, I want to honor you. I want to honor you by giving you my life and giving you my broken life for your victorious life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake together. And all this symbol of the, of the blood of Jesus, we, I, wouldn't, I, I, I wouldn't want to start this journey if I didn't have this. If I didn't, you know how in our homes we enjoy, in the modern world, we enjoy fresh water coming into our homes. And uh, we, we enjoy that mainly, not only for hydration, but mainly because we can stay clean. Because we know we're going to get dirty and smelly. We know, we know that. And that fresh water that comes into our home, to me, that's what this is. It's that, it's that fresh blood of Jesus that's always available to me to keep me clean, to keep me right, to keep me... It's a covenant drink as well. So let's partake together, or let's pray together first. Father, I thank you for the covenant of your blood. Lord Jesus, this is an eternal covenant. And Lord Jesus, I pray, I pray for those who don't have that confidence in this room and those who are not in this room. I pray for those who don't have confidence. I pray for my friends and my relatives that don't have that confidence, that I can somehow help them know that there is a promise waiting for them. And it's all because of the blood. Let's protect together, guys. Thank you for your, your attentiveness during this whole series. May we, never, may we never be the same. And may everything we do be shaped by the knowledge that Christ is returning, that our eternity is secure. May we live every day, every moment in the light of eternity. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I'm going to have our prayer partners come, stand in their places, and I'm going to dismiss you in a moment after I'll give you a moment to respond. But I know some of you came today and you came expecting prayer. Uh, one thing that uh, the young lady that I talked to earlier who who uh, I met at Starbucks. She told me at Starbucks, she said, you know, I go down, every Sunday I come, I go get prayed for by the prayer partners. She said, uh, last Sunday I was praying about college because go, I'm go, going to college next year and I couldn't decide where to go and, and nothing seemed to work. And after the prayer partners prayed for me, she said, it just, this college came to me and it was the right one for me and I'm so excited I'm going. She named the college she's going to. So, these prayer partners are really powerful 
prayer leaders. So you need to bring your, your burdens, your, your life, your earthly life, and have them pray. Maybe, maybe, maybe today some people came to mind who need to know Jesus, who need that connection with Jesus. And come tell the, tell the prayer partners, let them pray with you. I'm going to pray a dismissal prayer and you come. Can you, even while I'm talking, you can come. You don't have to be uh, not moving whilst I'm talking. You can move. And so move out and be prayed for right now. Father, I pray for us as we go about our day. I know we have responsibilities. We have earthly life and we have a life to live. But may we every moment remember that you love us. You love us so much that you're going to come back for us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great Sunday afternoon.